Most of you know we've been studying verse by verse through the Gospel of John. We've already entered into that final night before Jesus' arrest. At this point, Judas has already left to go and betray him. And as the remaining disciples learn that Jesus is now about to leave them, he says, I'm going somewhere where you cannot come. Jesus then told them in John chapter 14, verse 1, he said, let not your heart be troubled. And Jesus then went on to remind them of heaven, that our hope is not in this life, but our hope is in the eternal, eternity with him. Then Jesus told the worried disciples in John 14, 16, he said, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. The promise of the Holy Spirit, who will never leave the disciples, who will never leave you and I. He's always with us. He's the comforter. And then Jesus said in John 14, verse 27, He said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You see, it wasn't that Jesus was promising peaceful times, but Jesus was promising to give the disciples peace in the midst of troubling times. Peace that remained despite the wind and the waves of life crashing around us. We now pick up in John chapter 15 in verses 1 through 8 where we read about Jesus, the true vine. Verse 1 says, and this is Jesus speaking, I am the true vine and my Father is the vine dresser. I want us to stop right there. Because here we have another of Jesus' I am statements. It's his last one. Through the Gospel of John, Jesus has already said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And now this last one, Jesus says, I am the true vine. This is significant because the Bible compares the nation of Israel to a vineyard. If you look with me on the screen in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, and then verse 7, they say, Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. So the location was prime. The vine itself was hand-selected. The soil was perfectly prepared, and yet the fruit was bad. God continues speaking through Isaiah in verse 3 and says, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, Judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done to it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And skipping over to verse 7, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression." For righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. The nation of Israel was the vineyard which God selected. He prepared it, He planted it, He protected it, and yet it produced bad fruit. Instead of godly attributes, they produced 
sin. It's a reminder that even in the best upbringing and environment, mankind has fallen and given to sin. And yet here's the amazing thing. Since the vineyard failed to produce good fruit, God became the true vine. He became what mankind should have been. In other words, since mankind failed to produce good fruit, the vineyard, Israel, failed to produce good fruit, God became the Son of Man and produced the fruit that we lacked. This is your first fill in the blank on your note sheet. It says, this is the gospel, that God stepped into our spiritual depravity and became life for us, for those who call on His name. Jesus stepped into our need and became what we failed to be on our behalf. That's the gospel message, and that's the significance of Jesus' words in verse 1 when he says, I am the true vine. It's the gospel. Jesus is our source of life. And he says, and my Father is the vine dresser. Jesus did what we could not and became the true vine. Jesus fulfills what God intended for us all along, but he doesn't stop there. You see, Jesus then invites you and I to partake of what God had intended for us. Look at verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Jesus will tell us later in verse 5, he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. And so with this whole picture here, Jesus is the vine, the true vine, and we, the people, are the branches. When Jesus says he will take away every branch that does not bear fruit, Jesus is not saying, you better try harder. You better knock that off or I'm going to cut you off, right? That's not Jesus' heart. Not at all. The idea is that if a branch is not bearing fruit, then the branch isn't really in Christ. You see, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verses 16 through 20, He says, You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. And that last part is key. By their fruits you will know them. You see, every true believer in Jesus will bear fruit. Therefore, Jesus told us, again in John 15, verse 2, Every every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. This may be like the ones that Jesus speaks of in Matthew chapter 7 again in these next few verses, verses 21 through 23, where Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, this passage can easily be misunderstood. We can read this passage and then say, Okay, church, how many demons have you cast out this week? How many wonders have you done in the name of the Lord this week? Because look, they did some and it wasn't enough. You better get up there and keep going. You better work harder. That's not what Jesus is saying, right? The the problem wasn't that the people lacked 
more works. The problem was that the people here, they lacked a relationship. Jesus says, I never knew you. Because we're not saved by works, we're saved by faith in Jesus. That's why he says, depart from me. These came to Jesus with works, not with fruit. And Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. They tried to do Christian things, but they neglected a relationship with Christ. Your next fill in the blank. If we lack godly fruit, then our relationship is off. If we lack godly fruit, our relationship with Jesus is off. If we lack fruit in our life, it should be a red flag that goes up that tells us, maybe I need to reevaluate my relationship with Jesus. I need to get back to abiding in Him. Now look back at the second half of John 15, verse 2, where Jesus says, And every branch that bears fruit, He prunes, that it may bear more fruit. This reveals to me, your next fill in the blank, that God desires us to be as fruitful as possible. He wants us to be as fruitful as possible. Just because we're saved and we're in Christ, it doesn't mean He's done with us. It's only the beginning. You see, from the moment that you put your faith in Jesus until the moment you are in His presence in eternity, God is working on your heart to make you more like Him. Perhaps that is what the author of Hebrews meant when he calls Jesus in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. You see, it's that work of sanctification, the work of Jesus being in you. Whether you've been a Christian for 50 days or for 50 years, God still wants to work on your heart, enabling you to be more fruitful. That's His desire for you and for me. All this talk about fruit and being more fruitful, it makes us ask, well, what is the fruit that we should be bearing? We read in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. It says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. We notice as we read through this list that the fruit of the Spirit are more about character and heart than about outward actions. Not that actions are not important, but it's possible to have the right actions with the wrong heart. That's your next fill in the blank. It's possible to have the right actions with the wrong heart, which in God's mind is bad fruit. The right thing, but with the wrong heart, that's still bad fruit in God's perspective. The fruit God wants us to bear is to be Christ-like. That's the fruit that He wants to produce in your heart, in your life, in my life. He wants us to be more and more like Him. That is the fruit He wants to grow in each of us. Jesus continues in John 15, verse 3. He says, You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. The only way to bear fruit, the only way to be more Christ-like, 
is to abide in Christ. That's the only way. And the implications of this are huge. Imagine there's an area in your life that's still of the flesh. No matter how hard you try, you just can't conquer it. Maybe it's a person whom you lack forgiveness for, or a desire you lack self-control in, or it's a circumstance where you lack the peace of God in. You cannot bear the fruit you lack apart from abiding in Jesus. No amount of mental strength or straining can bear that fruit. And since we cannot accomplish these results in our own strength, Jesus takes the burden upon Himself. Jesus says, don't stress, don't strain, abide in Me. I will bear that fruit in you. You see, your next fill in the blank, we are not called to bear fruit, but to abide in Jesus. We're not called to bear fruit, but to abide in Christ. If you only remember one thing from today, let it be this point. It is important that God wants us to have fruit in our life, and yet His command isn't, go be fruitful, go bear fruit. That's not what He commands us. He commands us to abide in Him. Because it's so easy for, for me to get so focused on the fruit and get distracted from the vine that I grow out of. Rather than strain in our own works, we simply rest in Christ and let His Spirit flow through us. I don't, I don't know about you, but I can speak for myself. I've never once gone out to a fruit tree and seen a branch doing this. I've never seen that before. And you know what happens to a Christian who's straining, trying to bear fruit in their own strength? They get pooped out, right? Because it's not going to happen. You get frustrated. You get wiped out. You see a fruit tree, those branches, they just hang there. Abiding in the trunk. And that's what Jesus is telling you and I. You might say, well, there's a lot of fruit I need to be bearing. There's a lot of issues in my life. And Jesus says, yes, I know. That's why don't even try it in your own strength. Abide in me. Rest in Jesus. And that's what he calls us to do. Pastor Chuck says it this way. Pastor Chuck says, have you ever considered the vast difference between works and fruit? Works suggest a factory complete with pressures, deadlines, and the constant need to produce. But fruit pictures a peaceful, tranquil garden, a place where we are inclined to stay and drink in the beauty while we enjoy each other's company. It's important to realize that God doesn't come to His factory looking for products. He comes to His garden to enjoy its fruit. The gospel of grace invites us to leave behind the smog and pressure of a factory-like life of works and instead bear the fruit that God desires to see in the garden of our lives. I love that picture. I love it because it shows that the burden to produce is not on our shoulders. That idea where it's on our shoulders is that of a factory. Boy, I've got to meet that deadline. I've got to fix that issue. I've got to work. I've got to clear the smoke away and keep working. And yet, the idea of a garden is we just rest in Jesus, abide in Him. You see, as we abide in Him, the fruit will come because He's the one that produces it through us. The churches in Galatia, they fell victim to this works mentality. 
You see, Paul had come through the churches in Galatia and he preached the gospel to them. He told them the amazing sacrifice that Jesus made for them on the cross on Calvary so that any and all who would believe in Jesus, their sins would be paid for in full and they would be written as having a right standard according to God. They would be justified. They would be headed to heaven, not because of their goodness, but because of God's goodness. And so many of the Galatians, they received Jesus as their Lord and their Savior. However, after Paul left, others came by to those churches in Galatia. And they said things like, it's good that you believe in Jesus, but, if, but you're not a real Christian until you start doing this. Or they said things like, you are saved, but if you want to remain saved, you better stop doing that. And they began to put burdens back onto the Galatians back onto their shoulders. And sadly, the Galatians bought it. They believed it. And they began to strive and work, trying to please God in their own strength, in their own flesh and efforts. In other words, they were trying to bear fruit in their own strength. And so Paul wrote a letter to the churches in Galatia. And he says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 3, Are you so foolish? Such a nice guy, Paul, isn't he? says it so nice. Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect in the flesh? Paul says, when you first got saved, were you saved by the Spirit through faith, or were you saved by your works and your striving? It's the gospel of grace, right? We're all saved by grace, putting our faith in Jesus. It's not by our own works. The Galatians knew the answer to his questions. Well, yeah, when we first got started, it was by grace, through faith. It wasn't our own works. We weren't good enough to save ourselves. And Paul says, are you so foolish? Having begun that way, why are you trying to now perfect yourselves in the flesh as opposed to the Spirit? Paul continues this idea of if you couldn't be saved through your own strength, then why are you trying to be the Christian God calls you to be in your own strength? It didn't work then. It's not going to work now. In order to get saved, you looked to Jesus. In order to live as a Christian, you look to Jesus. It's the same. And so, verse 6, back in John chapter 15. Jesus says, If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. This is not a verse teaching that you can lose your salvation. We saw earlier that a true Christian bears fruit, and bearing fruit comes from a relationship with Jesus. And so those who don't abide don't have a relationship with Jesus. Judas is a good example of this. He was with Christ, but not in Christ. Judas had lots of green leaves. He looked really good at first glance, but upon closer inspection, there was a lack of fruit because Judas lacked that abiding relationship with Jesus. This teaches us that works are not always fruit. Sometimes they're just leaves. That's your next fill in the blank. Works are not always fruit. Sometimes they're just leaves. Going to church, reading your Bible, tithing, those are all great things. 
But those are all works that can be performed without ever being fruit. You see, works are things we do. Well, fruit is what God does through us. Let me give you some examples here. A work is to sing worship songs. But a fruit is to worship with joy in the Lord. A work is to pack a shoebox for Operation Christmas Child. But a fruit is to pack a shoebox with God's love for others. A work is to share the gospel. But a fruit is to have a burden for the lost. You see, fruit is more than just external actions. It's our heart. And if you read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 through 7, you'll see that as Jesus teaches the people, God cares a lot about our heart. That's why he said things like, you say you shall not commit adultery. That's good. But I say, even if you look at someone with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. Oh, that's because God cares about our heart. Jesus said, you say you should not kill anyone. Well, I say you shouldn't hate them in your heart because you've committed murder in your heart. Oh, God cares about our heart. And again, the only way that our heart is going to be less like our flesh and more like Jesus is by abiding in Him. It's that relationship we have with Jesus. He continues now in John 15, verse 7. Jesus says, if you abide in Me, And my words abide in you. You will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. God's word abiding in us fits right alongside with answered prayer. We talked about this two weeks ago already. In John 14, 14, when Jesus said, If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. We talked about how that's not like a magic word. You can say, I need a new car in Jesus' name. I want a new house in Jesus' name. But no, asking in Jesus' name means to ask according to God's will and His heart, His purpose. And if we're abiding in Him and His words are abiding in us, then we're going to pray according to His will. Jesus continues in verse 8 now. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. You see, when we bear fruit, God is glorified. That means God is praised, He's honored, He's lifted up when you and I bear fruit. And He doesn't just want us to bear fruit, but He wants us to bear much fruit. He wants us to bear much fruit. We're going to change gears a little bit here. And I want to look at Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, where we read about an example from Israel. You see, the nation of Israel was rescued out of bondage from Egypt. God did the impossible with the ten plagues. God did the impossible with the parting of the Red Sea and rescuing His people across it into the desert to be freed from Egypt. Freed after 400 years of slavery. God said He would bring His people into the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. But when Israel got their first glimpse of this promised land, they said, well, yeah, it is flowing with milk and honey, but there's giants in the land. These guys are huge. Their cities are fortified. We have no chance. We have no strength that could even hurt them if we attacked them. 
All of Israel knew they could never defeat such a strong people. But only two of the Israelites, Joshua and Caleb, believed God could do it. At this point, the majority of Israel represents the Christian who is trying to bear fruit in their own strength. They recognize what God is calling them to do, and yet they say, "Uh uh-uh, I can't, Lord, it's too hard. There's no way I could do that. There's no way I could accomplish that. Did you see the size of that guy? I can't do that. Do you see the size of this situation, Lord? This circumstance, I can't, I can't win that fight. When we act like this as believers, we end up feeling beat up. We feel wiped out. We feel exhausted, perhaps even feeling frustrated at the Lord because we recognize God says, this is what I have for you. And yet we're standing here saying, Lord, I don't have the strength to reach out and take that. I can't do that. I'm not strong enough. And that was Israel. They said, Lord, the promised land looks great, but we can't do that. We're going to go back to Egypt. You keep Moses, Joshua, and Caleb. We're going to find a new leader. We're going to head back. They felt beaten and destroyed. On the other hand, Joshua and Caleb, they remembered two essential things. Two fill-in-the-blanks in your note sheet. First of all, they remembered God's previous work. They remembered how God had sent the ten plagues. They remembered how God parted the Red Sea and He brought them across it on dry land. They remembered how the Egyptian army was the strongest military at that time and God destroyed them in a single act. They remembered God's previous work. The second thing that Joshua and Caleb remembered is they remembered God's word. They remembered that God had promised to give them the promised land. And so, after remembering God's previous work, after remembering God's word, they then moved forward, confident not in themselves, but in the Lord. They were confident not in themselves, but in the Lord. They understood that they were not rescued from Egypt because of their own strength. They didn't save themselves out of Egypt. God did. And so, God led the Israelites into the desert. And He let them wander for 40 years until all the doubters died off. Then it was only their descendants and Joshua and Caleb. And God says, now's the time. Now I can bring you into the promised land. And that brings us to this passage here in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, where God says, Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today, that was the river, and go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than yourself, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the descendants of the Anakim, whom you know and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the descendants of Anak? These were the giants, the big people. Verse 3, Therefore understand today that the Lord your God is He who goes over before you as a consuming fire. He will destroy them and bring them down before you, so you shall drive them out and destroy them quickly, as the Lord has said to you. The giants were still there in the promised land, needing to be conquered. But God says, I will go before you as a consuming fire. I'm going before you. All you need to do is drive them out. God was going to do the impossible part. 
They just had to look to him and trust in his strength rather than their own strength. And to me, this is a beautiful picture of what it looks like to abide in Jesus. We may all have giants in our life, far too powerful to conquer in our own strength, but God has already gone before us. God will do the impossible part. Your job, my job, is to look to Him and drive them out. You might say, but God, I can't forgive them. I can't. It hurts too much. And God would say, I've gone before you because I forgave you and I forgave them. You might say, but God, I can't love them. It's not possible. God would say, I've gone before you because I loved you and the world on the cross. You might say, but God, I can't break this habitual sin in my life. I can't shake free of it. I feel like I'm in bondage, Lord. There's no stopping. And Jesus says, I've gone before you because I was tempted as you are and yet without, and without sin. And because I now live in you. I've gone before you. That's the Jesus that we serve. That's the God whom we have. The God who says, yes, there are still giants to conquer in this walk as a Christian. There are still battles that seem impossible with our flesh. And yet Jesus says, I will go before you. I am your strength. Let me do the impossible. You abide in me. You rest in me. This is what the Apostle Paul spoke of in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. Paul says, And God said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. You ever think about how backwards that sounds? How weird that sounds? And yet when we understand what God is talking about, it makes perfect sense. God says, it's in your weakness that my strength, my power is made perfect in you. Therefore, Paul says, most gladly I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then... I am strong. The more Paul felt weak and incapable, the more he leaned into Jesus. Jesus tells us to abide in Him, for without Him, we can do nothing. But Jesus also says in Matthew 19, verse 26, But with God, all things are possible. Your last two fill in the blanks on the note sheet. Apart from God, we can do nothing, but with Him, nothing is impossible. In our own strength, all we can do is sin. But if we abide in Him, we rest in Him, then nothing is impossible that He can conquer and accomplish in your heart, in your life, in your relationships, in your workplace, everywhere. God's Spirit will flow through you bearing fruit, making you more and more Christ-like. Who are you going to be, church? Are you going to be like doubting Israel, who forgot God's works? They forsook God's promises. 
They tried in their own strength to bear the fruit and accomplish what God was calling them. Or are you going to be like Joshua, Caleb, and Paul who recognized their weakness and they said, Lord, I can't. But they didn't stop there. They said, Lord, I can't. So you have to. Lord, would you go before me? Lord, would you do what I can never do in my own strength? Don't try to strive and strain seeking to accomplish God's will in your own strength. It will not work. Jesus tells us in Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30, He says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This promise and invitation is not just for non-believers to initially come and put their faith in Jesus and become a Christian. This invitation is for you and for me. This invitation is for every Christian who has been trying to accomplish God's will in their life in their own strength. To stop straining, to stop striving, and to look to their Savior and say, Lord, help me to abide in you. Lord, help me to plug in to you, the true vine. And God, would you accomplish what I could never do in my own strength. Maybe you're here today and you've been worried about some fruit lacking in your life. It's been stressing you because you see an issue and you say, Lord, why isn't that getting fixed? I want it to be fixed. I want it to be more like you. Maybe you're sitting here today and you're wiped out and discouraged because you say, Lord, this Christian thing is too hard. I can't do it. Jesus would say to you, come to me. Come to me. Abide in me. Rest in me. And enjoy the relationship that you have with Jesus. And let that relationship flow through you. And do amazing things. Let that relationship flow through you and move mountains and conquer giants. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful that you loved us enough to go to the cross and pay for our sin. Lord, you loved us enough for that anyone who would call out to you and put their faith in you, Lord, you now call them son and daughter. Lord, you've adopted us into your kingdom, into your family. And Lord, you've offered us eternal life in heaven. Lord, we're so grateful that you don't stop there. Because in your word we can see your will for us. Your will is for us to be godly. To be like you. And Lord, it's an impossible task in our own strength. And that is why, Lord, you've given us your Holy Spirit. That is why, Lord, you've simplified it for us. As you said, don't focus on bearing fruit. Just focus on me. Abide in me. And Lord, you will do that in our lives, in our hearts. God, we're so grateful as we look back in our lives, then we look at circumstances. We look at sins. And we remember feeling broken and beaten up and exhausted, saying, Lord, I can't. And God, we look back and we see your victory in those areas. God, we surrender to you 
right now. The idols in our heart. The things that we've clung to. The things that we've been abiding in instead of You. God, we cry out to You for help. And we say, Lord, there's still more promised land to be conquered in my life. Lord, would You go before me? Would You be my victory? Would You be my strength? And Lord, as You do that, as You continue to make us more and more Christ-like, God, may You be glorified. May You get all the credit. Because it's not us. It's not our own strength, Lord. It's You. Lord, may You accomplish Your will in our hearts and our lives. And may You do it for Your name, for Your glory, for Your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord together. Praise the Lord. He saved us and He's still sanctifying us, making us more and more like Him. So let's fix our eyes on Jesus. Have a great rest of your week. If we can pray for you, we're up here. We'd love to pray with you, support you. If not, have a great rest of your day. God bless.